having discussed the major issues faced on both sides of the Civil War in the healthy and quick disposal of the dead. In the late 19th century, changes began to be made, changes which would revolutionize the way that hundreds of thousands of bodies in warfare were dealt with. Today we explore the Graves Registration Service and the important advancements that they made, which allowed for identification and proper burial of the dead. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So after a two-week hiatus, I am getting back to my series on the history of U.S. military cemeteries. And um, kind of the parts two and three, the first being the Graves Registration Service, I kind of debated over which to do first. Um, But I think you have to learn how bodies were dealt with temporarily before we can talk about the permanent overseas cemeteries. Um, and the Battle Monuments Commission, so that's going to be next week. But I'm going to get right into it, because I did take a two-week hiatus, uh, and we covered other topics, but uh, I know there's a lot of people interested in this. And I confess, this one, uh, for somebody who gets a little squeamish sometimes about the oozy-gooey part of death, this one is definitely an unpleasant task. But the Graves Registration Service is really interesting to me for a number of reasons. And I'm just going to kind of preface this episode. Um, Two years ago, almost three now, uh, I had been doing research into another project, completely unrelated to cemeteries, completely unrelated to my job, um, just sort of a personal project I was working on. And the question of who dealt with dead bodies in World War II came up because I was watching the movie Saving Private Ryan, uh, which, if you are familiar with it, it opens at the American Cemetery at Normandy, uh, and there is a pretty famous scene there. But watching the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, which it's an almost 25-year-old film now, so I don't think I'm going to ruin it for anybody, um, it's brutal. The depiction of the D-Day landings at Normandy on Omaha Beach are as gruesome as you get. Um, and obviously the anniversary of D-Day just passed um, a couple of weeks ago. It led me to start thinking about the fact that you have 10,000 dead during the D-Day invasion. 10,000 bodies is a lot of bodies, no matter how you slice it. And so after watching that scene in the movie, and I was kind of watching the movie as sort of background for this other little project I was working on, I'd, of course, seen it before, but it had been a while. I started to dig, and not knowing that it was called the Graves Registration Service, at first I was very frustrated because it was hard for me to find information. And eventually I hit upon an article, and I started reading, and I couldn't stop. Um, Because in all the World War II histories, and my grandfather was a World War II veteran. He fought in the Pacific Theater. Uh, He was in the Navy. And I can remember growing up, he, he just, he loved the WW2 movies, you know, Torah, 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 and the Dirty Dozen. And it's one of those things that they don't really talk about. And I think at the end of today's episode, you'll realize exactly why. Um, so let's go back a little bit to where we were two weeks ago. Remember that national cemeteries had been established at the Civil War, but national cemeteries are very different than having 
dedicated troops who are assigned to deal with them. Everything with national cemeteries was pretty much set up afterwards. And the burial details, if there were any in the Civil War, were handled by essentially the comrades of the fallen. This story starts with a really interesting guy. Um, And he's someone that you probably have never heard of. Um, But we have to go back to the 19th century again to 1898 when we have the Spanish-American War. And this is one that you might not remember from history class, but you have sort of two branches. So you have the conflict that's going on in Cuba, but you also have conflict going on in the Philippines. And so our story really starts in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, there is a U.S. Army chaplain by the name of Charles C. Pierce. And this chaplain is a reverend. He's an Episcopalian minister who was originally from Salem, New Jersey. Most of his adult life, um, from what I can tell, he lived in Germantown, Pennsylvania, but sort of that mid-Atlantic region. And Charles Pierce is interesting because obviously army chaplains frequently were called upon to oversee burial services. But under sort of the auspices of Quartermaster General Marshall Ludington, he becomes really important because he basically pioneers what will be army protocol up until the present day. So this chaplain takes charge of the U.S. Army Morgue and Office of Identification in Manila, in the Philippines. And he started the practice that when bodies from conflict were brought into the morgue, he started more in-depth procedures in terms of trying to identify them. So that way, you had a better chance of you know, if you were going to bury them temporarily, you knew who you were burying and you didn't have to do that much work later on. Now, in the case of this particular conflict, there really was not, there wasn't a standardized procedure yet, but the idea was that, you know, they were going to try to get these bodies home from foreign soil. So this idea of identification was important because that way you weren't just informing the family, but you could actually return remains. And we'll get to that later on. But so he begins to collect everything and anything that he can get. So whether it is physical characteristics, things like fingerprints, dental records, um, height, shoe size, anything that he thinks can help identify them, as well as physical things, marks on their clothing, other kinds of identifying marks tattoos, birthmarks, etc. Um, he also kind of pioneered certain ideas. He made sure that before they were buried, every soldier got a new uniform. Um, this is something I think that was only practical in a smaller scale conflict. Um, he also, at this point, really, for someone who is not trained in funerary arts he comes up with some really remarkable things for example he pioneers new embalming techniques because traditional embalming at the time was a real challenge in the philippines if you know anything about the climate of the philippines it is humid and tropical so traditional embalming was very very difficult so he essentially used the environment and studied it and figured out more effective ways to embalm bodies in those type of conditions 
Again, pretty remarkable for a guy who essentially had no training. Um, unfortunately, the climate also does get to him. Um, so in 1908, the very oppressive climate of the Philippines, I don't see that he had malaria or anything specific. I think he was just probably worn out and tired, and anybody that's been in that kind of environment knows it'll wear you out fast. So I, I give him credit for lasting as long as he did. Um, he was, um, he was born in 1858. So at this point he is 50 years old. And so he does, um, retire from the service and goes back to being an Episcopalian minister. However, before he leaves, he makes one final suggestion. And that suggestion is, is he believes that every soldier should carry some form of identification, which is not corrosive. And so he essentially pioneers the idea of dog tags. He suggests aluminum because it doesn't corrode. And he suggests that dog tags be worn. Now, prior to this, some soldiers would purchase metal identification tags on their own dime. But he suggests that it becomes standard practice for the U.S. Army to use dog tags. And it's the idea that catches on. He doesn't actually institute it, but he is the one that suggests it to the quartermaster general. And in 1913, the practice of using what are commonly known as dog tags, but are actually M1940 metal tags become standard practice for the U.S. Army. So Chaplain Charles C. Pierce, interesting guy, I think probably a guy you've never heard of in history, but has a huge role on everything that we're going to talk about today. So fast forward a couple of years now. So the U.S. gets involved in World War I. And again, if you remember your U.S. history, they are somewhat late to the game getting into World War I. But they don't have a plan, at least not initially. They don't really think about this. And I read an interesting um, article um, talking about Pershing, which Blackjack Pershing, um, obviously one of the great leaders of World War I. But he actually talks about how he was present for three of the first casualties of the war, and they were all of his soldiers. And he talked about how, as a soldier, the way that he had been trained, you were buried where you fell. And that was always the common practice. And while he wept for his soldiers, they were buried right there where they fell. And he, for a long time, was very dogged about this and the fact that he thought that that was the way that things should be. For a number of reasons, though, that is going to change. So by general order number 104, um, issued on August 7th, 1917, they established the Graves Registration Service. And you'll never guess who they call out of retirement to lead it. If you guessed our old friend Charlie, you would be right. Um, so... <laughs> This is kind of interesting um, for a number of reasons. And to start off with is the fact that they got into this conflict without a real game plan. Um, I don't know what they were thinking about, but they seem to... Um, they seem to essentially think that this would work itself out. And I don't know if it was because the other combatants in World War I, they felt like they already maybe had a plan in place for dealing with the dead. I, I, I'm not really sure what the thinking process was. So that same month, um, 
Pierce is sent back to run the Graves Registration Service. Um, he's actually not going to arrive over there for a couple of months, so there is a little bit of a lag um, before that happens. Um, and he will actually remain in France through 1919. So he's going to be there for the duration. He is going to be there running the show. Um, so there are essentially four big graves registration units in World War I. There's not as much information out there. Um, there's a boatload about World War II, which is why we'll talk more about World War II. Um, but so there are basically four units, the 301st, 302nd, the 303rd, and the 304th Graves Registration Units. Um, it totals about 150 officers, 7,000 enlisted men, um, and they will supervise the temporary burial of about 73,000 Americans from the First World War. Um, the interesting thing about them is they are seen as kind of second-class citizens at this point. Many of them are either incapacitated or somehow deemed insufficient for regular field duty. And I couldn't find a lot about what that would entail. Um, some of them, I don't know if they've been repurposed from other companies, had been previously wounded. Again, like I said, there's not as much information about World War I. Um, and it seems like it was kind of cobbled together. I know that they did try to get some people who had previous mortuary experience of some kind. But regardless, um, they also work a lot with locals. And this is something that will continue to be common practice through World War II. Specifically in France, where, you know, even if you had those who spoke the language, part of the challenge... Um, was that they were trying to use local knowledge to do this efficiently. So in World War I, about 700 temporary cemeteries were established by the Graves Registration Service. And they would use local French to purchase the land, whether it was from a farmer or in a town. And they did this for a number of reasons, mainly because they didn't want to be a burden on the local citizens. Already, you know, they are destroying the landscape of France. They are wreaking havoc in other ways. So they don't want to put a temporary cemetery someplace where it's going to foul the local water supply, for example. They also are trying to find places that are a little bit more out of the way because they're trying to avoid, say, a cemetery being destroyed by artillery fire or ending up in the middle of a battlefield. So working with locals was a huge part of the Graves Registration Service. Um, To me, this is essentially like circling the wagons. The idea that you are trying to get the dead to at least a centralized location, so that way you don't have little gatherings of like 10 graves scattered all around the country. Because that's going to be a nightmare. Because the whole idea behind this was the fact that when the war was over, you were going to give families the chance to repatriate the dead. And this is why I said Pershing originally thought this was a crazy idea, but eventually he will come around and it's going to become a much more popular idea. And people clearly wanted this because when they would get notification that their son had been killed, people were writing to the War Department demanding to know when the body would be home for burial. I don't know if this is a product of sort of an advancing world. You know, we're in a, a time of really accelerating technology, People saw that the technology was going to be there. And we talked about this a lot with railroads in the Civil War and how they facilitated that. 
in terms of speedy and expedience in burial, technology is going to be the key. And this is why that as wars progress and as the technology gets better, there is a much higher rate of return on bodies and on identification. So over the course of the war, the Grace Registration Service really becomes quite integral um, and following the war as well. I watched a fascinating video um, that actually came out of the National Archives. It doesn't have any sound, obviously, but it is a full movie. And at first, (laughs) I was a little shocked because they show you everything. And a lot of it is post-war. And and in fact, I'm pretty sure most of it is post-war in like the 1919-1920 era when they started repatriating bodies. But they show you beginning to end, you know, them excavating a temporary cemetery grave, how they removed the body, what they did once they removed the body. Um, There's a fascinating scene where they actually are washing the body off with a watering can then how it is packaged, how it is placed into the official coffin. It's packed in the ceiling crate. They show you them taking this, the crates on barges. I will post a link in the show notes because it, it really is worth watching because it's the best resource that I have seen that actually gives you a glimpse into the early days of the Graves Registration Service. Um, and it's also a little surreal because it's a movie, but there are these old-timey guys and... I mean, they look like they're out of a period piece movie with sort of short pants and knickerbockers. And they are just, I mean, some of them have their faces covered. And I was thinking about this because this is certainly like Spanish influenza period. Um, But they are just very methodically packing these up. It's assembly line. Um, I would imagine the desensitizing happens pretty quickly. And I have some firsthand accounts I want to read to you later. But our buddy, Mr. Pierce, will eventually rise to the rank of Colonel, Colonel Charles Pierce. Um, You can also find some of his sermons online if you're into that type of thing. Uh, Like I said, he was an Episcopal minister. Um, And he, after the war, will be brought back to Washington where he continues his service. And he is essentially... Um, put in charge of the cemetery division at the office of the quartermaster general. And it becomes his job to set up the military cemeteries after the war. So that's more of what we'll get into next week. Um, But it is in 1921, while he is overseas examining the new military cemeteries, which is also featured in that video I mentioned, um, that he actually catches influenza and he does die. And so he dies overseas. Um... On May 16th, 1921, his remains are returned to the United States and he is now buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So, Colonel, and actually I guess after he was out of active duty, he was demoted to Lieutenant Colonel. uh, But Lieutenant Colonel Charles C. Pierce, Episcopal Minister and the OG Grave Master of the U.S. Army. So, post-World War I, they actually essentially dissolved the Graves Registration Service, I think probably after 1920. So, from 1920 to 1941, it essentially doesn't exist. And this is going to cause major problems because it's difficult to just 
sort of summon this up when it has been completely dissolved, that the practices have changed, the technology has changed. There are a lot of issues because of the disbanding of the Graves Registration Service in the interwar years. So there is going to be new standards established in the Army Field Manual 1063 for the Graves Registration Service. And it's obviously in World War II going to be much larger. Now, a couple of notes about this. So both the Navy and the Marines have their own burial practices. They are sort of cobbled together. They do their own thing. So I'm not really going to talk about them. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The primary reason is the fact that the Army in World War II had four times as many casualties as both the Navy and the Marines combined. So when we talk about war dead, we're mostly talking about Army dead. Um, Also, for obvious reasons, um, the procedure was that personnel who died at sea, now if they were close to land and it was practical to return their remains, they would, but for the most part, they were buried at sea. Um, They were wrapped in their mattress cover, which was weighted, and they were buried at sea. The latitude and longitude was recorded. Obviously very different than a lot of what we'll talk about otherwise today. But just know that that's the reason I'm talking mainly about the Army when it comes to this. Um, It's because just sheer volume, if nothing else. Um, By the end of the war, there would be 30 active companies uh, and then 11 kind of detached platoons. Um, They were not actively trained in World War II until 1943. And that's kind of important to remember. Um, There is, I read some accounts of the um, the 612th Graves Registration Service, which was one of the first that was put into effect. And I know that they did some kind of rudimentary training. They talked about how they observed an autopsy. And I think that they worked with some of the British field personnel before they were deployed. But for the most part, many of these soldiers had never even seen a dead body before they had to deal with one. Which kind of makes it even more remarkable because the efficiency and the work ethic of these particular companies is really astounding. And reading the accounts is quite fascinating. Um, So to give you an idea, each of these companies um, essentially had a headquarters. And the headquarters staff was made up of four officers and 12 enlisted men. And then each platoon consisted of a single officer and 22 enlisted men. There were also medical detachments. Now, these medical detachments were not the same as army medics. They didn't specifically have combat wound training where they were meant to help wounded soldiers. These were more folks who essentially were like medical examiners, and they were sent along to try to establish cause of death and for basically scientific assistance to the other enlisted men in the platoon. Um, Another big thing was is that every company had to have a very highly skilled draftsman because every temporary cemetery had to be mapped. Uh, These guys, in addition to the really tough work that they had to do, were essentially in charge of when it, again, it came to repatriation at the end, finding where the bodies were buried. Um, the standard was, 
uh, that was laid out in Army Field Manual 1063, that there was a Graves registration company assigned to every corps with at least three divisions. Now, I am not a military expert, but I think that what that means at the end of the day is that these were some of the most overworked men in the U.S. Army during World War II. And as I start to talk about some of what they actually did, it's going to become clear as to why that was. So the personnel essentially had a couple of different functions. The first was that they selected sites for temporary cemeteries. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was in charge of um, the actual acquisition. So this was a little bit different than what I talked about where they used local citizens for acquisition in World War I. Um, they were also in charge of sort of the temporary preservation. Um, this sounds like they're actually doing upkeep on the cemetery. They're not. Obviously, they were moving on as soon as they were done. But their job was to try to, before they left a cemetery, to get all of the pertinent information that needed to be done to make sure that everything was marked, everything was in order. Obviously, proper burial of the dead in line with all existing regulations. Um, trying to isolate the number of single or small clusters of graves as much as possible. Get everybody in the same place, corral them. Um, receipt, collection, and disposition of all personal effects. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Registration of all graves in order to enable proper identification of the dead and relocation of any isolated graves, cemeteries, and graves within cemeteries. Um, this includes mapping. So this is the record-keeping part of it. And then, obviously, general supervision of all personnel involved. Um, this was generally seen as a safe place to be in the war. Um, but there is a lot of records. I mean, remember I talked about in the Civil War episode how often there would be a ceasefire to allow for the collection of the dead? That becomes far less common when you get to World War II. So this could be a dangerous undertaking in many cases where they, you know, a lot of times snipers would try to pick them off when they were going out to collect the dead. Um, they also were not very popular among other soldiers uh, who saw them kind of as vulturish. And I think a lot of it was displaced grief and anger and fear um, that they kind of took out on these guys unnecessarily. Um, but just kind of know that this was not considered, it was considered light duty in the fact that they were not as heavily engaged in combat, uh, but it had a lot of other issues. Um, Private Thomas J. Dowling um, of the 612th Graves Registration Service said, quote, not many of us were killed, but we died in different ways. The work was nightmarish and it aided our hearts, cracked some of us, darkened the spirits of others and numbed the rest. I think it's it's one thing when you imagine, you know, how horrific it might be to see people who have immediately died. People who die in the battlefield, people who are shot. That's bad enough. But when you start to imagine soldiers that are blown apart by landmines, soldiers that die in plane crashes, soldiers that die from artillery fire, soldiers that are dismembered, it, it starts to get very gruesome very fast. Um, soldiers in advanced states of decomposition. And 
Keep in mind, the Graves Registration Service was seen as essential for two reasons. First of all, for health and sanitation reasons, which we've talked about before. Uh, and they actually are much higher rates of infection and blood poisoning, things like that, among Graves Registration Service workers. Because you don't have a lot of showers. You don't have a lot of hand-washing facilities. So they are dealing with some pretty gruesome and pretty disgusting stuff on a regular basis. And sanitation is not always great. The second reason is morale. Quickly burying the dead and not seeing piles of hundreds of dead bodies is good for troop morale. So, for instance, if you ever watch any of the documentaries that were made by some of, like, the really famous filmmakers during World War II, or see sketches that were published in American newspapers, they never show dead bodies. Some of the films do. But for the most part, I don't want to call it all propaganda, but it's mostly propaganda. Most of the information that's being relied, relayed, relied, (laughs) relayed back to America is meant to be uplifting, showing the boys getting through. Even though people obviously know the realities of war, keeping morale up is important. And there are particular points where things get really grim and you can see that the Graves Registration Service is under additional pressure. Another thing that is not clearly outlined in the guidelines but becomes very important is that the data that the Graves Registration Service collects will eventually be used in the prosecution of war crimes. You know, the World War II, a lot of people talk about the fact that, you know, having the restrictions for the Geneva Convention, you know, stops war crimes or cuts down on war crimes. There are still certainly massacres and there are slaughters. And there are a number of cases where coming upon bodies and the way that they are executed and the manner and the location, it becomes very clear that war crimes have been committed. And the data that the Graves Registration Service has both on the bodies and their conditions is incredibly important to that. The, the bulk of the information that we have is unfortunately from the European theater. There's a couple reasons for this. First of all, there's a lot more naval battles in the Pacific, so a lot more burials at sea. Um, the scattered nature of the Pacific battles also has something to do with that. I mean, it's scattered over, you know, thousands of miles of ocean, lots of different islands. So you, it's a little bit more scattered. There's less concentrated evidence um but also there um again in the philippines um going back to the beginnings of the graves registration service um there is a very important case where the graves registration service are called upon to find bodies um from a death march that is perpetrated in the philippines and they become hugely important because they're not called until three or four years after to recover the bodies and so dealing with jungle conditions and things like that There's not as many stories out of the Pacific, but they are the ones that do exist are pretty striking. Um, These folks also have to deal with just an incredible range from, you know, the jungles of the Philippines to the very dry, arid climate of North Africa. You know, when you have, you know, the desert fox and his campaign down there, Um, 
one of the largest temporary cemeteries that's going to be established is actually going to be in Italy. So you have a really wide range. And then imagine when you start to get to Northern Europe, the nightmare, and there are some really compelling photos of them at the Battle of the Bulge showing how, you know, you just have bodies that are frozen to the ground. And they talk about having to actually thaw the bodies before they can even get into their pockets. The scale of World War II is almost unimaginable even today, but trying to look back at this and considering how you deal with the disposition of bodies is an even more daunting task. So, let's look at a couple of things. Um, So I want to start off by talking about an actual example of a temporary cemetery and the process for how it was handled. Um... So I'm going to go with Normandy. It's just a good example. As I already said, you have close to 10,000 casualties, which is such an overwhelming number. And the bodies start piling up quickly, and you have more and more U.S. troops arriving, so they want to try to get these troops buried. They talk about the establishment of um, Blossville Cemetery which was one of the temporary cemeteries. It is no longer there. The bodies were later removed um, to the American Military Cemetery overlooking Omaha Beach, the one from Saving Private Ryan I mentioned earlier. Uh, There is a memorial marker placed at the crossroads where it was, but essentially they came up and they had 50 bodies that needed to be buried. So they found an open pasture and... One of the officers came in and he dug his heel into the soil. And that would be the first, the corner of the first grave. So what they did was they had no supplies, essentially. So they started to break open the wooden boxes that held K rations and they made stakes. And so they essentially paced out where the graves would be. They had no tape measure. They had no shovels. They had no picks. They had no equipment. Um, they also at this point had nothing, generally the more gruesome bodies, they would cover them with something. The general practice was, is that the body was wrapped in a mattress cover. They didn't use body bags back then. Um, mattress covers, and you can see lots of photos of these online. Um, it essentially was a shroud, a fabric shroud. So the process would be, is that the body would be stripped of a couple of things, Starting off, you would take off any usable pieces of equipment. That would be reallocated to other soldiers. Um, In addition to that, you would strip them of any personal effects. These would be placed in individual cloth bags. They would later be processed. I'm going to talk a little bit about that processing in a while. And then the body would be placed into these. Um... They didn't have a form at first. Um, Forms were very important. Uh, I'll post a picture of one. Uh, Essentially, it's all the identifying information. So they essentially paced out the cemetery, marked it, and then they went to the nearby town, and they essentially were like, hey, does somebody want to help us dig graves? The graves registration service, I'm not saying that they never dug graves, but generally they did not. So either they used local labor which in the case of France at this point, who is so economically depressed from years of German occupation, 
they are happy for any work because the U.S. came in with bags full of francs that they could use to pay for things. They would either use local labor, they would use prisoner of war labor, so German, German prisoners of war dug graves, or, unfortunately, often the duty to dig graves fell to the African-American companies. They were often co-opted for burial practices, which I have some photos of this as well that I'll post um, because you see it quite frequently. A lot of times the stretcher bearers who are getting ready to bury bodies, they are almost always African-American in a lot of these photos if they are not, you know, local hire workers. So at first it's kind of casual, this whole redistribution of equipment. They would just put big piles. Um, it's so interesting because they talk about how poor the French farm workers were and how they looked longingly at the Americans' boots um, because the majority of the Americans um, were wearing you know, heavy-duty jump boots, which after years, again, of German occupation and economic depression, the French would have killed for some of those boots, um, but the Americans were buried with their boots. Um, however, I guess, because the practice was to bury not just your country's dead, but also enemy dead, usually in a separate area, uh, apparently they did allow the French to take some of the German boots. That's the story, at least. Um, by the time, so after Normandy, you, know, you have sort of that period of initial invasion, and eventually they start to move out towards St. Lowe. In this time, though, you have roughly 6,000 bodies buried before Operation Cobra starts to move off. Um, just staggering amounts of bodies buried, really. Um, Normandy is probably going to be the largest operation in terms of burial um, because what's going to happen is, is that as the U.S. moves through northern France, a lot of the burials are going to stay in that coastal region. Um, and eventually that's going to be when we talk next week about the permanent overseas cemeteries. That's where a lot of them do fall. Um, so... Talking a little bit more about the Graves Registration Service and exactly what they did. In terms of identification, there are, like I said, the basic things that they were doing prior to this, they continue to do. So they take a full set of fingerprints. In some cases, depending on the condition of the body, they would carry syringes and they would actually inject fluid into the fingers to kind of plump up the fingers to take fingerprints. Again, not pretty, but it's true. Um... They would also um, take dental impressions, dental records that they could. Again, all of those common features going back to when Colonel Pierce first started this whole operation, all of those identifying factors, taking notes on what personal effects. So if you had a ration book, if you had a pay book, any personal letters and effects on your body. And I'm going to talk about two identification cases, and it's really fascinating at how hard they work to identify these. Um, identification for World War II in terms of unknown is that about 78% of the dead were effectively identified, which is pretty good when you consider the te technology is low, um, and they don't have things like DNA, and they're doing this all basically on the fly. Um, one big thing that should be noted, the Graves Registration Service were not authorized to either embalm themselves or facilitate the embalming. 
this is a big thing. And this is one of the reasons that they are able to do things as quick to, quickly and effectively as possible. None of these soldiers were embalmed. They were buried, and this is one of the reasons that identification later on is going to be difficult, because the natural decomposition process occurs. And after a couple of years, most of them are just skeletal remains. Um, and it happens faster in some places, depending on the soil composition and the other environmental factors. But these bodies are not preserved. And this is a big thing where they are not kind of making exceptions. Everybody gets a dignified burial, but they are all pretty standard. So... With the identification, obviously the first step that they take is to look for dog tags. Dog tags are going to be a big part of this. Um, so what they do is when they inter the body, one of the dog tags is interred physically with the body. I have generally read that they placed it in the mouth. That way, as the body decomposed, like, the skull generally stays as a solid mass. The other dog tag was attached to the temporary marker about two inches below the top. Now, temporary markers, um, they did their best to identify at the time. It was either going to be a Greek cross, sort of the traditional cross shape that you see in most military cemeteries, or topped with a Jewish Star of David. So either way, the dog tags would be attached to that. Um... No remains were buried as unknown until every available means of identification initially had been exhausted. Um, if the dog tags were missing, so if you could identify the person through other effects, so, um, so like they had letters on their body, they had a pay book, you know, somebody else, they're like, hey, that's Johnny. If they could identify but the person didn't have dog tags, what they did was the body was buried with a identification burial bottle. And you can, again, see pictures of these online. They were green glass bottles with a white top. And this was something that before dog tags had also kind of been instituted, the idea of a bottle that had the information inside so it wouldn't break down. You know, a slip of paper that had information written on it. Um... In some cases, before they had bottles, they would actually use that person's canteen. Um, if they could not identify it. So either, any kind of identification, either a dog tag or a burial bottle, was placed with the body. In the case that they could not be identified, they were marked as an unknown soldier, which was an X, dash, and then whatever the identification number was. So X100, X101 so on and so forth. Um, in some cases, if it was not a complete body, they would also place the dog tag in a burial bottle. So say dismembered limbs or things like that. Um, it's interesting to me that they didn't, it didn't seem like they um, really had the ability to make dog tags in the field which is kind of surprising to me that they couldn't just, like, there was no stamping machine, but it doesn't appear that they did, at least from what I read. Um, so what information was put on there? So the first line was the name. First, middle initial, last name. Second line was your army serial number. The third was your rank and organization. The fourth line was the date of death um, and your faith. So P symbolized Protestant, 
C for Catholic, H for Hebrew. And then the fifth line was within the cemetery, what the grave location was, what section, what row, and what grave number. Then they had a form. It looks like about a postcard size, which is a report of internment. Again, most of the same information is on there. Um, it says disposition of ID tags. Were they buried with the body? Yes or no. Is it attached to the marker? Yes or no. Um, and they also, which I think is really smart, they have which position it's in relative to other graves. So who is buried to the right? Who is buried to the left? I think this way, because of the sort of hasty burial, if remains got mixed up, that way they could kind of figure it out. And then lastly, a list of personal effects. Um, for enemy dead. Essentially the same procedure was followed out, except what they did was then they submitted the information to the Prisoner of War Information Bureau as prescribed by the Geneva Convention. Again, these protocols in place really do kind of dictate what they are required to do. Certainly the same cannot always be said about their actual internal practices. Um, so I saw an interesting note that the plan furnished for cemeteries by the quartermaster general was a basic guide. Um, and a lot of it had to do with information. So some had a 300 grave plot plan. Some had a 200. Some had 144. A lot of it depended on how much land you had available. Sometimes they would find that too large a temporary cemetery was a problem. Um... A lot of it had to do with what was available to them. Um, so another thing that's important to remember is that their actual procedure was dictated by different operations and what was available at the time. Um, unfortunately, Graves Registration Service supplies were considered to be expendable items. Um... So for Operation Neptune, which was D-Day, um, they assumed that a mattress cover would last an individual 375 days. And then follow-ups stretch that out to 450 days. Um, just the burials alone that happened following D-Day almost exhausted their supply. So while mattress covers were the standard, they also would get certain other things. Um, the basic thing that was really always promised were three things. You could always get mattress covers, you could always get crosses, and you could always get personal effect bags. Those were things that were always honored. Um, other things, it's sometimes difficult to get, um... Requisitions such as gloves and stripping knives, things like that. These guys had to work with what they had. Um, they tried to do the best that they could. Um, so disposition of personal effects. Let's go back to that for a second. Um, so personal effects, um, these bags, they are small. Um, think of like the size of a small, small handbag that a girl takes on a night out. Um, they are kind of like a rough woven cloth, kind of like burlap, and they have drawstrings at the top. 
Um, all government-issued property, like I said, was essentially withdrawn from the personal effects um, and given two things. And this seems to be the same for, like, government papers and things like that. Obviously, any monetary things. So if it was local currency, it was converted into U.S. currency. If it was... Um, you know, their pay book, anything that was owed to them as a soldier by the U.S. government was paid out in U.S. currency. So if they were carrying French francs or English pounds or whatever, it was converted into American currency. They didn't just send like a bag of coins back. Um, in addition to that, um, anything that kind of had like army logo and things like that, anything that could be used by the army essentially was taken back. Personal effects like photographs, letters, you know, religious icons, small scripture, things like that. That, for the most part, was all returned to the family. But the interesting thing is, is that they did go through and they removed what were considered to be embarrassing items. So if you were carrying, say, pornography. Um, if you were a married soldier and you had a photo of another woman say a local woman, or if you had letters from your mistress, all of those things were removed before your effects were returned to your family. And it it wasn't exactly clear if this was done immediately. It seems like most of them were sent on to like local quartermaster offices back in the United States, um, and they kind of dealt with it all there. This was a big part of it, I think, with casualties being so high, having any kind of personal effects returned was very important. So this was seen as a very essential service. This process goes on throughout the war. And a lot of times they are moving in right behind the battle. They will have to go back and find graves afterwards because sometimes, obviously detachments of soldiers or if there's a plane crash or something like that either the locals will have buried them or some of their comrades will have buried them for the most part they try to do it as quickly as possible because the longer that you let this go on the more difficult it is to find them so I'm going to give you two of the more interesting stories that I came across of exactly what they were doing and how they were doing it in terms of identification so like I said, none of these bodies are embalmed, so when it comes time to identify them, not just post-mortem, but further on down the road, really you have to deal with as much that you can. So the first is Unknown 43 from Marigny, France. He was buried in Plot A, Row 7, Grave 128. The information that they had was that he was killed in action and he had been driven to the cemetery on an army truck driven by a man named Herman Rosen. So they tried to hunt this man down and see if he had any potential information that was related to that. Because at first they were curious if the killed in action was actually Herman Rosen himself or if this was the driver because the tag was not entirely clear. Um, Mr. Rosen was very confused because he had not actually driven him and there's much back and forth about this um, is that he apparently encountered the jeep that was driving the bodies 
which was shelled along with his vehicle by enemy fire. And two of the three men in the other Jeep had survived. He essentially said that he had been given the job of kind of helping them get to another vehicle, and somehow that's how his name got involved in this. So they asked him, all right, did you get any of these guys' names? Did you talk to them? The interesting thing was that apparently the men driving the Jeep that had this unknown body in it had found a ring on the body. And because of that, the ring somehow got linked with Mr. Rosen's name. And so Mr. Rosen's father had been sent a ring in the mail. Essentially, like, we found your dead son's ring. Here it is. And he was confused because he's like, my son's not dead. So Mr. Rosen turns it into the Army Effects Bureau in Kansas City, Missouri. And says, you know, I don't know anything about this ring. Somehow, because my son's name was listed as the driver who drove this body, it ended up in my house. So the Graves Registration Service investigators start to look at this ring. And they see it's a SVHS Spring Valley 1942, excuse me, 1944 ring. And it has the initials DT. So they assume that SVHS and Spring Valley means it is Spring Valley High School ring for the class of 1944. So they check in the United States and they find that there are Spring Valleys in Arkansas, California, Illinois, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin. Which if that proves anything, it means that we're not that creative in the United States. They also saw inside the ring that there was a maker's mark for Jostenek. So looking at the jeweler's guide, they determined that that was actually located in Minnesota. And they reached out to the manufacturing company, giving them all the available information about the ring and the initials DT. They confirmed that they had a Dorothy Thomas who had ordered a ring of that description in 1944 and directed them to speak with Mr. J. Shirley, the principal of Spring Valley High School in Wisconsin. So they write a letter to Mr. Shirley, and he revealed that Dorothy Thomas had given her ring to a classmate, a soldier named Don Peters. He also knew that Mr. Peters had gone to Normandy. He was able to confirm after speaking with his family that he had received, they had received a letter saying that Mr. Peters had been killed on the 2nd of August, 1944, and that he had grown up in Spring Valley, Wisconsin. So they had enough facts to present this to the Board of Review. And after this, based on the fact that the body originally had the ring, it fit the description. They were able to identify unknown 43 as Don Peters of Spring Valley, Wisconsin. Fascinating. I mean, it's crazy to think that one ring, which was accidentally sent to the father of the wrong man who had basically nothing to do with it, would eventually happen. The other case is even more bizarre. Um, so it has to do with the Lieutenant Walter Bidlack. And they had reported that he was killed on D-Day, June 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy. 
The problem was is that even though they had him reported as killed, they did not have a report of him being buried. However, there was a set of remains listed as unknown 112, which was interred in the St. Lawrence Cemetery, which consisted of only a left foot. But the legging on the left foot had a laundry mark for Lieutenant Bidlack. This was the only identifying factor, and it was discovered about a month later in July. Their question was, where is the rest of the body? We only have a foot. So they start going through all of their records, and they discover that another unknown, unknown 158, might be the remains that they were looking for. Um, They knew that unknown 158 had died at or near the Normandy Beach on June 6th and was buried on June 8th in a temporary cemetery nearby, and it was later moved in July to St. Laurent. Again, like I said, they were corralling it. So it was buried in a temporary grave, then moved to yet another temporary grave. And it had been listed as Frank Nowakis based on the fact that there was an army pay book issued to Frank Nowakis in the pocket. The army was confused by this because Frank Nowakis was alive and well, had served out his term in the army, and was discharged after VE Day. They had a note about this pay book. Lieutenant Nowakis was very confused because he said he still had his pay book. So it's possible that there was confusion, that maybe there was piles of bodies after D-Day. Either way, it had been incorrectly identified as a soldier who was still alive. But when they exhumed the body and they examined it, they discovered that it lacked a left foot. The right foot was still there and was wearing the remnant of a heavy gray non-regulation sock. The shoe size was 11 and a half. When they confirmed this, they were able to compare it with the sock and the shoe on Unknown 112. They also were able to use identifying characteristics to say that the hair, which was light brown, was the correct color. And so based on these facts, plus the fact that Lieutenant Bidlack was in the 112th Engineer Combat Battalion and there was an insignia attached to his shirt collar, they basically were able to cobble together the fact that this foot, which was buried on its own, was the foot that had been blown off Bidlack before he died. So they were able to reunite the entire body and confirm to his family that they had indeed found their son. Um, And they did opt to keep him buried there in France. So those are just two examples. Um, Like I said, there is a really wide range of experiences that the Graves Registration Service goes through in World War II, mainly because of just the global scale. Um, I could go into more stories, but I want to talk a little bit um, at the very end about what happens after World War II. Korea is really going to be a breaking point for the Graves Registration Service for a couple of reasons. Korea, while often referred to kind of as America's Forgotten War, was brutal. Um, The terrain is very rocky. It's very mountainous. It's very cold. Um, 
In addition, the way that the warfare progressed meant that many of the temporary cemeteries that were set up unfortunately would quickly be overrun by communist insurgents. Um, the counteroffensive was very aggressive, and what would happen is, is that they would set up cemeteries in areas that they thought were fine and then would get pushed back. And this is really the reason that the entire policy of the U.S. Army is going to change. They essentially decide that no matter the cost, no matter the trouble, returning remains was more important than them falling into enemy hands. Now, to backtrack for just a second, it's important to remember that this was always kind of the same idea. I didn't mention this, but... The Graves Registration Service, once towards the end of the war, they crossed the Rhine. They did everything that they could to avoid burying Americans on German German soil for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, logistically, with what happens after the Second World War, that makes sense. But also, they felt that American citizens would vehemently disagree with their dead being buried on German soil. So they would try to ship the bodies back into trucks essentially out of Germany. And that kind of ties into this because in Korea, there's going to be this real anxiety about bodies falling into enemy hands, even though inevitably, you know, some Americans who were shot down or things like that, they're behind enemy lines. But on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1950, the army changes their policy and the new policy is going to be concurrent return, that bodies will not be buried in temporary cemeteries for repatriation later. They will be sent home immediately. And this really ushers in a new era. And with this new era, technology is only going to increase. So in Korea, after sort of the initial conflict begins, bodies are being sent back. Um, There are still temporary cemeteries, and I talked a little bit about that in the Mortuary Railroad episode And the fact that the funeral trains continued to run through parts of Korea. Um, But really, it seems like to me, from what I've read, after 1951, they were not burying in temporary cemeteries unless they had no other option. By Vietnam, there really are not formally organized temporary cemeteries. Again, sometimes necessity would demand it. But for the most part the increase in plane technology and the ability for Air Force transport essentially makes the facilitation of returning remains not a non-issue, but far less of an issue. And it goes from taking years to repatriate bodies to just a few days. Also, even by Vietnam, you have an increase in technology sufficient to the fact that you now are up to a 96% identification rate. So that by the end, so at the end of World War II, you have roughly 70,000 on ID dead. Um, By the end of Vietnam, you have 28, 28 individuals. So going back to the Civil War, we talked a couple of weeks ago, you had 60% of bodies were identified. World War I and World War II, it's around 78%. Same thing for Korea. By the time Vietnam comes around, they only have 28 bodies with no ID. And of those 28, they have now all been identified. Um, The last of them to be identified, which was actually Michael Blassie. You've probably heard that name before because he was the unknown soldier from Vietnam. 
and that was the reason that he was the last identified. Using mitochondrial DNA, he was identified in 1998. He was removed from the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier for burial by his family in his local cemetery. And it's basically understood that there will be no more unknown soldiers um, due to advancements in DNA technology. And they opted to leave, obviously, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier for Vietnam empty. And I know I've mentioned that before. But it's essentially because there's nobody to put in that tomb because there are no unknown soldiers from Vietnam anymore. Um, I think it's impressive, though, that even in the 1970s, they only had 28. That's just me, but I think that's pretty impressive. Um, Working up to the modern day, because of the advancements in transport, there are far less. Um, So it's no longer called the Graves Registration Service. Today, it's considered to be Mortuary Affairs, um, which... Sounds like a bad romance novel. Um, There are only two companies. So there's the 54th Quartermaster Company and the 111th Quartermaster Company. Um, They're the only standing units that deal with mortuary affairs. Um, And it's considered a military occupation specialty, um, which is 92A for officers and 92M for enlisted men. They do still play a role, and obviously they have been active in the recent conflicts in the Middle East, um, starting with Desert Storm and coming up to today. It's interesting, because I can remember in architectural history, we talked a lot about the system of forts that were so important from the Revolutionary War on through the Civil War, and talked about the different classifications of forts and the way that they were constructed the way the batteries were used and all of those things. And, you know, there are hundreds of these things that still exist. But the advent of plane technology made them essentially useless because forts were only good at spotting ships from sea. As soon as you have airplanes that can fly over forts, they have no value. And that's not to say that the Graves Registration Service didn't have value anymore. It's just that... Civilian funeral directors are now going to be taking on the bulk of the responsibility that was once so essential to handling of temporary burials. If you can get bodies home in just a handful of days, that really speeds up the process. Um, There are still places that are in charge of handling military dead. Um, For the most part... On this side of the ocean, um, they all kind of go through one disposition. I know that there's multiple locations where they arrive. Um, The Charles C. Carson Center for Mortuary Affairs, uh, which is at the Dover Air Force Base, is where the remains of those who are killed in action are processed and returned. Um, We have two overseas mortuaries, one in Germany and one in Korea. Um, in addition to those 92M staffers that I talked about that are part of the actual companies, um, they actually have licensed funeral directors and embalmers who are U.S. citizens that also work there. Um, so the Department of Defense actually pays civilian morticians to handle these jobs. Um, so while there are still mortuary affairs troops that go out looking for hasty or unmarked graves, unburied dead, personal effects, whatnot, 
for the most part, it's not really an issue. Um, they cared for the majority of the 4,500 military casualties of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the interesting thing is, is that reading about them, it's kind of like part of their position is symbolic. Um, they do serve a scientific purpose. They record wounds and things like that. But it seems like there's largely the return of service members is seen to be um, really, it's all about the return. So the Department of Defense in 2008 lifted its ban on military media coverage. Um, so before, when they had returned remains of fallen service members prior to 2008, there had been a long ban. Um, now that They've lifted the ban. It's up to the survivors' relatives if they want the media there or not. Um, the interesting thing, the interesting thing is that um, I know that the military actually received a lot of criticism a few years ago because they discovered that they had—I don't want to say faked—but um, they kind of had that some of the returns of unknowns were actually staged, uh, particularly in Hawaii where there were some unknown soldiers from different conflicts, whether it was World War II, Korea, Vietnam, where they kind of staged the remains when the remains had actually already been there. And the interesting thing was is that most of the coverage that I've seen on this was actually in British newspapers. The army kind of came out and they admitted it. They basically said that they would park, a, they would tow a plane out on the runway. These are planes that don't even work. They would tow it out on the runway and they would put the flag drap, draped casket there and they would bring it down kind of for the media coverage and bring it into the hangar and then tow the plane back in once the media left. And the fact was is that many of these remains had been there for years and had not been identified yet because they were doing DNA testing or other test to try to identify the individuals so they're not going to announce their return without knowing who it is and now that they know who it is they can do that I think this goes along with the whole idea that you know the artists in World War II weren't allowed to show dead bodies in their propaganda it makes people feel better it gives them a sense of accomplishment um it is not cheap the identification efforts to identify unknown soldiers even today are incredibly expensive really really expensive and so it's kind of not a joke when they do this um I don't think that it's meant to be disrespectful in terms of this um I think that their main goal is the fact that they're trying to give it the dignity that is deserved and I can't really argue with that um yeah so I think it was seven years that they were doing this, going back and reading my notes. Um, a lot of these are things that were in jungles for, you know, decades. Um, you know, you're talking to the sum of probably 83,000 bodies. Um, I think that as technology has increased, they have really had the opportunity to do more. Um 
I, I don't know. I really can't. I really can't complain with this. I think it's a lot of song and dance. I don't particularly get, but also I can't say this. I have never had a military family member who this really impacted. Um, but I also understand when you have something on average, it takes 11 years and around a million dollars to identify each of these unknowns. And the older the body is, the harder it is to identify them. I can understand why they bring them back en masse. And then once they've actually identified them, I think everybody probably wants to celebrate at that point. So that's that's the end of my position. But hopefully that gives you a better idea about how the military changed their policies, how military chaplain helped to facilitate that and uh, just what a daunting task that it was. Um, As always, thank you, everyone, for your reviews. I know I have quite a few new followers Uh, I do want to thank those of you who are actually listening. Um, I know I promised this episode last weekend, but I won't lie, I was a little burned out. Uh, I've been getting a lot of backlash about the Confederate memorials issue. Uh, And if you don't want to talk about that, feel free to stop now. The bulk of the episode is over, but I do want to Give a shout out to those of you who are listening because I have a lot of followers on social media who don't actually listen to the podcast. And I am happy to defend my position to people who are listening and who have heard my views. After all, that's why I have a podcast. I record exactly what I think and what I say. So those of you who are listening, I want to tell you I do appreciate that. I know there are a lot of you who are very loyal and who have reached out to me to tell me that you like the show. Um... My goal has always been to talk about cemetery issues. It's also my podcast. So I have opinions. I have things I agree with, I disagree with. And this is how I can tell that a lot of these people aren't listening because not only are they asking me questions that they would know the answer to if they had listened, but also they would know that I have been just as harsh on a number of other topics, whether it is the Catholic Church or Kent State, any number of other things that I disagree with. So... Those of you who are listening, I do very much appreciate it. Um, I've gone quiet the last few days, like I said, just because I was tired and really didn't have the energy to fight. Um, The Confederate monument in DeKalb County over in Decatur, right near Atlanta, did come down last night. There certainly have been a number of other ones that have come down. I'm not going to take too much time to talk about it, Um, but there's a lot of success. Today is Juneteenth when this is being released. Um... So there is progress coming on that front. Um, The National Trust has come out and they have very blatantly said that they feel the Confederate monument should be taken down. Um, I think more and more momentum is growing and haters going to hate. People can be as mad at me as they want, but I personally think it's a non-issue. And I also think it's an issue that is really impacting cemeteries. And I think it's something that I know folks who work in cemeteries across the Southeast. I know people in Louisiana, in Texas, in Mississippi, in Alabama, here in Georgia, down in Florida. This is something that's going to affect them. And I hate to say it, but the majority of people who have come at me and are fighting with me right now, they don't work in cemeteries. And they will never have to personally deal with this. So at the end of the day, I'm on the side of cemeteries. And I don't want them to be vandalized. And I don't want them to be put under scrutiny. And I don't want cemetery workers to have to deal with the repercussions of things that are really not their problem to deal with. 
They have enough issues with shortages of funding, with shortages of manpower, with cities that don't care. There are plenty of issues facing cemeteries. Relocating monuments shouldn't be one that they have to worry about. They've got much bigger issues. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Feel free to follow along on Facebook at Tomb with a View Podcast, on Instagram at Tomb Period with Period A Period View. If you want to email me, you can always email me at Tomb with a View Podcast at gmail.com. And those of you who have reached out, thank you so much. I have talked to some very cool people this week, and uh, I look forward to speaking with more of you. And lastly, www.tombwithaview.weebly.com. And I know I am terrible. I have to update the website. Um, in other news, <laughs> at my job, I wrote a book in the last three weeks. Uh, not a long book, but a 50-page book. So that also has been taking up the bulk of my time. And much to my chagrin, it is a book about plantations, um, which is mostly just pissing me off these days. But if I have not been on social media as much, and if I've been dragging my feet a little bit with this week's episode, just know it's because I was actually writing a book. Um, If you have ever tried to photograph, research, write, design, and package a book in three weeks or less, man, hats off to you because I've been doing that and uh, have not been getting a lot of sleep. Next week, we will continue with part three of our investigation into U.S. cemeteries. We're going to be talking about those overseas cemeteries that I hinted at this week. So I think you guys will really enjoy that one. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View.